This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet the cowering panel. Ian Dunt is editor-at-large of politics.uk. Hi, Ian. You can, Hello. You can Hello. stop cowering now. That's good. Excellent. I feel much more comfortable. Boris Johnson uh, unveiled a new crime initiative saying that chain gangs of offenders doing community service would discourage antisocial behaviour and that stop and search, which is being extended, is actually a kind and a loving thing to do, mm. as people have been stopped and searched often say. <laughs> um, the Police Federation has smacked it down in a furious letter, which is well worth a read. Behind the kind of come-on-chaps blather, what is the substance of this bill and why? why the police are annoyed oh no there's not much substance there at all really it's all these sort of kind of new labourish eye-grabbing initiatives they would new labour would always have this as well you know asbo and then we'll march you down to the cash point you have to take the money out and of course none of it fucking happens and none of it would work even if it did happen and so it's a series of ideas like that you know so alcohol t- tests for people you know who are involved in drunken disorderly conduct um tags for thieves the work the the gang chain thing i mean it's pretty much without any substance whatsoever. And the police are largely upset, mostly because, I mean, they haven't had a pay rise, they haven't been consulted, neither they nor the Crown Prosecution Service, nor the courts, nor the prisons, or probation uh, service have really had any sort of significant funding. In fact, have most of their funding taken away since austerity. You know what the weird thing is about, about this stuff is, you, when you talk to criminologists, it's not like tough sort of law and order stuff doesn't is always a failure like there's some scenarios in which it can kind of work it doesn't really work on sentencing like most of the evidence shows on sentencing someone that's about to commit a crime doesn't really pay an awful lot of attention to what the sen- the potential sentence is they do pay attention to things like likelihood of getting caught so actually in a way that's kind of uncomfortable for some liberals like stuff like cctv can make a difference yeah. technology for instance around cars one of the reasons that people think there's been a decline in crime is because it is just harder to nick a car like back in the day you'd have the old movie thing of like you know open the door and then do the little weird blue red wire thing which you can't really fucking do that with many cars right now and that makes it harder to do it however the the bit that they always miss god knows you've tried (laughs) (laughs) on the half streets of hampshire when i was growing up there was many a day where we just spent it um the bit that they always veer away from is the really complicated difficult stuff which is intervention and when you talk to the people who, who do do interesting work on that it's really fucking hard man so for instance like you know, not everyone that grew up, brought up in a home where there was domestic violence goes on to be violent themselves. But pretty much everyone that is violent experienced violence when they were very young. And you can do intervention on that stuff. You can it, Most of the most effective stuff works through people like dentists, because when people go in to get checked, you can find the kind of damage from domestic violence there and intervene. People like uh, health visitors that go in after pregnant, uh, after people have given birth. That stuff is doable. But to do that, you need a coherent intellectual framework. You need to actually want to address the problem rather than just own the grid for a particular day. And that is all this was. They were just trying to own the grid. Naomi Smith is chief exec at Best of Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hello. Reports across the country of meat and fish disappearing from supermarket shelves. Assuming your veganism hasn't entered an extremely successful new militant (laughs) phase. Um, Is this COVID, Brexit or Covexit? Oh, God, not a new one. Um... So undoubtedly, the pandemic is, of course, having an impact. And, you know, there have been delays on tests and all the self-isolation issues that that we know about, pandemic, whatever, whatever. But the haulage industry itself has been really, really clear for years now, if not certainly the last year, that this is a problem that started with Brexit. Logistics UK, which represents a lot of the hauliers in the UK, said that uh, there have been about 25,000 EU drivers that have left the market since Brexit. So uh, I think the total figures are around 90,000 in terms of shortage and at least 25,000 of those are EU drivers. But of course, rather than actually tackling the cause of the problem and, I don't know, maybe improving the Brexit deal, they've just come up with a bunch of small C, big C conservative solutions to the problem. And the Transport Secretary has come out with things like making it easier to work much longer hours as a lorry driver, and re- like lifting all of the uh, hour restrictions on their driving. So, you know, they're there for a reason because we all know that tiredness kills and you see those big things on the motorway saying, you know, take a break, blah, blah, blah. Uh, no, not if you're a lorry driver. Keep keep food on our shelves and keep keep those trucks rolling. 
to kind of increase testing capacity for more British drivers, they've begun a consultation to remove parts of the test that lorry drivers have to take and remove the requirement to test car drivers who want to drive large vans or pull trailers. Now, I'm a driver for my sins, and I certainly would not feel like driving a Honda Civic is equivalent to being able to do a massive truck full of very heavy pallets of dead animals. Um, <coughs> no, no, what I want to do anyway, I but you know, you know what I mean? big meat truck. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a real career change. Best for, best for meat. Um, so, I don't know, maybe like the government's plans are just to make the roads so safe that we don't venture out to the supermarket to see how bloody empty the shelves are. Ros Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Ros. Hello. A new report from the Department of International Trade argues the UK should reject what it calls green protectionism and we should harness the good old free market to address the climate crisis. Based on the free market's past record of causing the climate crisis, uh, what's the plan here? Well, I'm glad you asked me that, Darren, because it's all about making Britain a lean, green, value-creating machine. <laughs> and that I sounds quote, like a very bad, like a rap, you know, in the 90s when they'd have like a guest, really bad guest rap in the middle of a record. Yeah, or like some sort of 80s ad for, you know, sweet corn or something. No, anyway, it's, uh, yeah, uh, that's Liz Truss, by the way, I'm quoting there, obviously. Um, <laughs> M- MC Liz Truss. Yeah, MC Liz Truss. Um, it's, it's, it's a bit of an enigma, this report, because I hadn't uh, come across it. I hadn't noticed it until you asked me to ask me about it. So then I read it, all 52 pages of it. So devotion. But, Taking one for the team there. And I wasn't mm. quite clear what it was all about because the overall proposition didn't seem entirely clear. And then I worked out that what the real root of it was that the government wants to sell its green technologies abroad. And it's basically worried that other countries' trade barriers will stop it doing that. Um, especially if those other countries protectionist or subsidise what they're doing and so it wants to insert these clauses into the free trade agreements that we're doing to ensure that Britain's green fantastic technologies get a fair whack. Now there are a couple of objections to this. One is that Britain is basically limbering up to, uh, up to do an enormous amount of state aid as part of what is regarded as a post-Brexit dividend and we want to subsidise all these industries. The other thing is that you know, this is willfully blind, if you know. This is a 52-page report, and can you guess the one thing it doesn't mention? The one thing it doesn't mention is about trade. Brexit? Yeah. No, no mention of Brexit <laughs> during the entire report. Uh, so it's a massive exercise in distraction as well. So, yeah, it, it was intriguing. <laughs> this week on the show possibly related to what we've just discussed, is the parliamentary off-season proving to be fertile ground for Labour after a difficult few months? Plus, the think tank More in Common has a plan to end the culture war. We'll look at their ideas for tucking flowers down gun barrels. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, the least sporty panel in the world of podcasting, (laughs) we'll be discussing the Olympics. And if you want an extra, extra bit to tide you over between podcasts, may we recommend our new Monday morning minicast for Patreon people only. It's called Oh God, What Else? And it's a special bite-sized edition where two regulars talk about something that's on their minds. This Monday, it's me and Ian. What will we be talking about? Back us on Patreon and find out. First this week, we're in the twilight zone between parliamentary recess and conference season, which is usually the time when opposition parties start making a lot of noise. There is some good news for Labour, with several polls closing the gap with the Tories to four points, and Salvation putting them just two points behind at 37%. After the paralysis of the pandemic, is the Labour Party finally waking up? Naomi, so that's, that's, there's not just an outlier, that's a few different polls all telling basically the same story. What's changed, do you think? What's behind these numbers? Very fascinating question. Not sure I know a definitive answer <laughs> so I will speculate as ever obviously it's, it's kind of welcome very welcome but unclear I think on what's driving it so on the one hand you have got Labour fresh from their very slim victory in Batley and Spen trying to be a bit harder and bolder on policies we've seen Angela Rayner talking about workers rights fair employment and they've obviously been putting some pressure on the government because the government has been belching out these half-baked policies like you talked about with Ian at the start of the show um, that have of course been completely uh, panned by the policing union as just gimmicks I think the more likely cause of the closing of the gap though rather than kind of Labour being on the front foot is that the government, of course, had quite a few howlers. So totally um, setting themselves against the nation's darlings of the England football team, screeching U-turns for Sunak and Johnson on the will-they-won't-they-isolate stuff after uh, being exposed to um, Sajid Javid's positive COVID uh 
infection. Um, and then this real damp squib around Freedom Day. And of course, I think they were expecting that to be a big moment that would give them a boost. But because people had kind of been in pubs and doing all that kind of stuff anyway, it was a bit of a damp squib. And when you look at Redfield Wilton long-term polling on whether or not the country broadly agrees or disagrees with the government's approaches on lockdown and, and COVID... Yes was way ahead. It was on sort of 55% for a really, really long time. Uh, I, yes, I agree with the, the government's COVID uh, restrictions. And we've known throughout the pandemic that the public are nowhere near where the Steve Baker types are. They are much more in favour of, of stricter stuff. And then around the 21st of July, that just plummets and it goes right down to 34%. And obviously disagreement with the government strategy goes up. So I think that's really interesting. I think that that probably is linked to Freedom Day and voters thinking, hold on a minute, I'm not sure that this is quite the right thing to be doing at the moment. It all feels a little bit too fast. And Johnson's approval ratings are down quite dramatically. Yeah. There's an amazing one that you sent me in uh, where it just shows that regionally, for some reason, the Midlands... He's like minus 30 something in the Midlands. I don't know why the Midlands <laughs> hates Boris Johnson. Um, They've, all been, they've been very sensible. People. But they're good. They're great. Good salt of the yeah, earth. Yeah, next, next live show. Next live show. Definitely got to be in, in, in Birmingham. So it's probably more down to government failures than Labour's success at this stage, I think. Um, but Starmer has had a couple of good PMQs. I don't think that ever really impacts the polls. It's, it's nerds like us that watch it. But it might speak to a greater confidence and belief in what he's saying himself that, that maybe is, is coming across um, through more of Labour's messaging. And yeah, sort of, you know, fingers crossed that this trend continues. Labour's big new policy is a new deal for workers, which would raise the living wage, tax multinationals more, create more manufacturing jobs, ban fire and rehire practices and enshrine rights for all workers from day one. Unfortunately, a bit of timing coincided with asking some party workers to take voluntary redundancy because uh, the party's finances are a bit shaky at the moment. What do you make of the It's Employment Charter? And do, and do you think that, that that sort of timing was any more than like a one day story? On the Labour timing stuff, that is obviously bad and very unfortunate. And I do have, yeah some frustration with them not looking at the grid uh, and thinking <laughs> maybe we hold this one back um so again that sort of, just sort of speaks to this internal labor chaos and you know i'm glad to see that the roles are being sorted out now and different people are imposed and being shuffled see around see the word and... jobs twice on the whiteboard and yeah 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 quite possibly um so the employment charter is good it's good that that labor are back on the jobs agenda and workers rights is obviously something that if, if labor aren't standing up for them then who is in the country that will speak to their core vote well. It will land well with hopefully some of the Conservative Labour switch voters that we saw at the last election. However, it is tricky. And, you know, somebody that does employ people and, and ha- does try and run a business, it is going to have an impact. And I wonder how many people they might lose at the other end as a consequence of that. And I'm not entirely sure how it fits with the other strategy that they're trying to pursue, which is to win over more sort of soft con voters, particularly up in, in former Labour heartland. So I think that's going to be a slightly tricky what, one so for which, them which, to land. Which, 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 what's the problem here? I mean, I think because giving... Fire and re- I, mean, I know you yeah. do a lot of firing and rehiring <laughs> at Best for Britain. But, but more ethical employers, like what would be the problem? What, what do you think of that package? What do you think is likely to be maybe to lose some people? I suppose just the, the cost implications of all rights from day one for some employers might feel quite terrifying and particularly small organisations that are going to really struggle to absorb some of those costs. So, you know, if somebody is hired on day one and then is on long-term sick on day two, as a, as an employer, you've got that obligation then to pay them, but you literally don't have the money to backfill that post. And if that post is critical to operations and just, you know, delivering products to your customers or, or mm. creating the thing in the first place, that could technically be very, very difficult. I mean, it's, it would be the same to lose that person after two years and them go off on long-term sick, granted. So I, I, I can see a situation where entrepreneurial type voters who are maybe sort of, you know, left-leaning on progressive issues, but slightly more harder nose on economic issues might find that kind of policy a little bit off-putting. So it'll be interesting to see how it's, how it 
it lands. I think it can be great for the gig economy workers. I think it's you know good for them. I want Labour to be doing more and protecting workers' rights. I just wonder how many votes they'll win from it at the expense of losing others at the other end. Um, Ian, despite the standard criticism that Starmer's Labour has no policies, they've actually announced loads, uh, including scrapping the benefit cap and tuition fees. But it can be quite hard to remember them. Is <laughs> this an issue of, of presentation or timing or not having a sort of unifying vision that will join the dots? I think there's a bunch going on there. I mean, partly there was the fact that it plays into their internal civil war, right, because of Starmer's promise that he was going to keep all the policies in the last manifesto. So then suddenly everything you say on policy becomes part of what's going on behind your back rather than yeah. what you're saying out front. It's also, you know, this is well, you know, we've, we've expressed this many times, but it remains true that it's really hard. It's been really hard over the last 18 months during a pandemic to go, oh, by the way, here's our policy on primary schools or something. Everyone's like, don't give a fuck, mate. <laughs> There's a pandemic on. So yeah. it's very hard to, to get some sound there. However, they're not great at I mean, a repeating a message, be it at selling a message, I think. And thirdly, at consolidation you know and that actually so if you then take to make it fair you take the pandemic message right like what what's striking to me is that they've mostly got all the pieces of an alternate pandemic plan they've got they've said stuff about ventilation they've said stuff about funding people to isolate they across the board they've, they've mostly got all the pieces there but they've never just put it together and gone well here is our alternative proposal so that yeah. every time that they're accused of being captain hindsight every time they're accused of crowing from the sidelines of oh do you, don't you really just disagree about masks and just wanting why can't they just be there to point at their actual fucking proposals so lots of the time even though most of the ideas are bubbling around and it isn't even necessarily you don't want to you don't want to blow your load. You know what I mean? Like you shouldn't really be coming up with your centerpiece policies right now. It's so far ahead of an election anyway. You know, it just seems a bit like the selling and the consolidation of some of the ideas isn't really there. How far ahead of an election do you think we are, Ian? I mean, I, I think that they've got it right when they say it's probably, you know, 23 and you know, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe. Maybe 22, but it's probably 23. Yeah, I I was working to the assumption that it was spring 23, but there has been a lot of rumour this week about autumn 22, and the Conservative Association is beginning to select all of their PPCs now, Hmm. so that from the autumn they will have had a full year to bed in. Um, And I just wonder if they're thinking, okay, the vaccine bounce halo can only last for so long, and maybe they'll try and cash on in it. I don't think it's going to last till autumn 22. No way. <laughs> no, it won't. There's also, I mean, the main, the, my main thing with all this is just the budget. If you looked at the, the, the timings that he was dealing with in the budget for when stuff would, when the taxes would start hitting and, and the belts start And turning, interest rates might start creeping up. Right, exactly. You just think that, that looks like a 23 election on, on that basis. I have no further, you know, sort of evidence for it. Um, Boris Johnson, as we know, is a liar. Um, and Dawn Butler Get out. called him. <laughs> oh, forgot the rules. Um, Dawn Butler called Johnson the master of untruth and half truths in Parliament. It's a compliment in a way. Um, Starmer said he, he agreed with Dawn Butler, but also agreed with the Deputy Speaker uh, for kicking Butler out um, for breaking the rules. Now, it sounded like a fudge that when that went round on Twitter, everyone was just like, mate, your mind up, mate. But could it, the rules being as they are, I mean, could he have said anything else? Could he have, could he have played that one better? No, I mean, look, it's it, also it's in the radio, you know, Joe. Rather than you know the statement that you put out, you know, press release, right? So you're not, you know, if if we if we were putting together a three part press release, we would talk differently to the way that we do in this studio, where we're like, well, on the one hand, this, and on the other hand, that, you know, which is basically what he was doing, which is that what she said was entirely correct. But those are the rules in the Commons Chamber, so you can't. You know, it's basically like saying, well, you know, it's right to rush to hospital, you know, when your wife's about to give birth, but it's not wrong for the speed camera to flash you, you know, to, to take a flash yeah. and go like, well, you yeah. know, you've broken the speed camera. This is a fucking eminently sensible point that anyone could understand. But because it had even the nth degree of nuance to it, of course, it was too much for the voices on Twitter. Yes, because it was, I mean, obviously, every, I was, it was very bracing to hear Dawn Butler say that. You know? Yeah, yeah. And she's, yeah. you know, I think she is, she can be a very impressive figure. Um, but wow. I remember from A level. I think she can be. But, but yeah. I just remember even from A level politics, there was like you know you can't, yeah, you can't I, just call people lies in the comments. So there is this sort of, yeah, like, you go girl, but nonetheless, look the, the the other way of talking about it would be to say, okay, 
we've got the thing on not calling lies. If we're going to keep that rule for not calling lies, what we really need to do is make sure that we firm up to the same extent the rules around misleading the House. And at the moment, those Ah, rules lie with the Prime Minister, essentially because they're in the ministerial code. That's at his discretion, not only, you know, whether it's broken, whether an investigation launches, what you do on the back of an investigation, as we saw when Priti Patel was found to have broken it. And he thought, you know what, I'm not going to do anything. And the guy who did the investigation felt he had to resign rather than the Home Secretary. So we've got parts of the system that are holding firm because there's a speaker there to go, you can't say that. And there's other parts that aren't holding firm because the Prime Minister is in charge of marking his own work. So on that basis, I think the th- the, probably the thing to add to it would be, fine, she did the right thing, but we need to start taking the ministerial code out of the hands of someone who is self-interested in his application of it. Could Lindsay Hoyle have a just a minute style buzzer <laughs> when Johnson lies? <laughs> The other argument is that basically if you allowed MPs to say this, they would say it all the time. And they would basically, it would be constant accusations of lying. And that would be bad for Parliament because it would be a kind of default accusation and you wouldn't ever get into the nitty gritty. As it is, they have to say, you know, they have to talk around it and they have to say in what precise way the minister or whoever has misled potentially the House of Commons. And it it forces you to go Mm. down into the detail of it. Otherwise, it gets into a he lied she lied. So that's that's yeah. another argument why maybe you should keep that rule. Ian, Labour conference coming up in September. Um, are there any obvious battles on the horizon and how important will the result of the Unite leadership election be? Well, we're still in the midst, really, of... of the, if you look last weekend, we had um, the London sort of convention for Labour, and that mostly went to the moderates under Labour to Win, who's a sort of banner group for, for the pro-Starmer guys. I think Momentum ended up with five, and I think 18 went to, to Labour to Win. They're doing quite well there. There's similar sort of hints of what's going on in the Unite leadership contest. In the Unite leadership contest, you have Gerard Coyne, who's a sort of centrist, quite moderate figure, not even this, I mean, quite pro Starmer, but also just generally saying to the union, like, we just need to stop fucking obsessing over Labour, especially given this is a party where only a third of the uh, party, I beg your pardon, it's trade union where only a third of its members even vote Labour. I mean, loads of them vote Tory, loads of them vote um, pro Brexit parties in, in the various forms in which they've in which they've existed. Now he's in a two, so he's against two sort of candidates who are much further to the left. The, the early signs are that, that he's second, just on the basis of nomination from branches. I'm not sure that that's entirely right. I, I think there's there's a good chance that the left vote was split. So you could be looking at a situation that by the time we get to that conference, internally in Labour, the moderates have a much stronger, firmer hold and actually the Unite Union as this agitating force, as it's been under McCluskey, will start to fade into the background. But would either of the left candidates, I mean, given that Howard Beckett, thank God, is out of the picture, Mm -hmm. would either of the, the, the left candidates be as aggressive and partisan and factional as Len McCluskey has been? So Steve Turner, who's, who's really in the lead on the left, um, does look like he's very much in the McCluskey mould. He's endorsed by McCluskey. He's talked a lot about, I want to I want to be at the table. I want to influence policy with mm-hmm. Labour. So I, I would expect to see the same things from him that, that you've seen for the last 10 years. One of the big things that's, that's going to be coming up at the Labour Party conference is whether or not the party will corporately adopt um, a position on electoral reform and advocating proportional representation. There have been well over, I think, 250 CLP motions passed up and down the country in favour of it. Um, and most of the big unions are backing it now and have passed their motions. So if Starmer wants a unifying conference motion where you have got people on the far left of the party advocating for PR just as much as you do mm-hmm. uh, people in the centre ground. It could be a really easy win for him um, if he comes out and backs that. Is that something that you support, Naomi? <laughs> <laughs> I think it is. All, anyone who supports democracy would surely support equal votes. Ros, let's talk COVID. Uh, when we discussed unlocking last week, cases were shooting up. Um, but happily, maybe surprisingly, uh, they've since fallen by over half. However, death rates and hospitalizations are rising. So it's a mixed picture. Experts say it takes two weeks to see the effect of tightening or relaxing restrictions. We're not there yet, based on July 19th. Do you have any idea what's going on here with these numbers? <laughs> like, I've just basically set up, nobody really understands these numbers. Explain these numbers. Well, yeah, I should preface everything by saying that yeah, it's all speculation. And obviously, hospitalizations and deaths lag cases so that if there is a genuine call, falling cases, then uh, it will show up in the falling number of mm. hospitalizations and deaths in the coming weeks. What we do know is that Scotland had this fall before we did. And interestingly enough, it seems to correlate quite closely to Scotland being kicked out of the Euros. Uh, And the Scottish uh, cases have not gone up again 
subsequently and hospitalizations and so on have not increased again. So that is a good sign. It suggests that there was a big Euros effect with basically people sitting around inside in groups watching the football and catching COVID off each other. Mm. Uh, So that that seems to be one of the main explanations. Of course, there's also the effect of a quarter of kids off school, loads of others self-isolating because they didn't want to ruin their holidays, all that sort of thing. And the fact that people really don't seem to be tearing the pants out of it in a sort of Jonathan Van Tam way. I mean, I think I sort of start only about third of clubbers normally are actually returning to clubbing because the rest aren't comfortable with it yet. So there's also quite an interesting suggestion that because Delta is so much more transmissible than the other variants, that when it spreads, it spreads really fast and really quickly. And then there's a dramatic fall off. And that's what we actually have seen in India where the falling cases has been quite precipitous in India. So there is a suggestion that, you know, if you're going to get it, you get it fast and then it's over with quicker. But that is very much in the realm of speculation. It certainly, look, it's a a rosier picture than than we had last week, at least. Yeah. Um, Steve Baker is warning the vaccine. I've stopped calling him reflexively Brexit hard man. Steve <laughs> <Baker>. <laughs> um, it's very hard, though. It's warning the vaccine passports could split the Tory party irretrievably after all we've been through on Brexit. <laughs> Starmer has given vaccine passports a soft backing as long as you also get a passport for the negative test. Do you think the issue is more of a problem for the Tories of Labour or is Baker being uh, a drama queen? It is more of a problem. I don't think... For the reason you'd expect. I don't think most Tories want to die in a ditch on this one, on vaccine passports. Not least because they don't want to be associated with the kind of people who stand up in Trafalgar Square and call for doctors and nurses to be hanged. You know, that's not a good look for most people. But their main concern about vaccine passports, I think, is not the coercion involved in getting, encouraging people, forcing people, if you like, to get vaccinated. It's more the burden that it places on businesses to identify and monitor those people. Mm -hmm. And that's what Baker really doesn't like. He does, it's all red tape, it's back to Brexit, it's it's all all that kind of mindset. And I think that's what he he dislikes most. Uh, For Labour, I don't think much of Labour has an ideological problem with them, um, to be honest. I don't think it's that much of an issue in the party. I may be wrong, but I don't see a significant libertarian or even anti-vaccine passports movement within the party. Naomi, finally, a bit of Brexit. Uh, Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves has told the FT that a Labour government would back closer trade links with the EU and work with Brussels to fill in the gaps in the Johnson-Frost Brexit deal. Well, the gaps to fill. <laughs> um, but even if Labour win the next election, which is in itself a tall order, unless they adopt your very clever idea of electoral reform, <laughs> um, I mean, will it by then be too late to fix much of this deal? Possibly, but we've got to think about December 2020 is the lowest point in UK-EU trading relationships um, and build on it from that. I think she's hit exactly the right tone on this. It is not about rejoining. It is not about turning back the clock. It is about filling the massive gaps that the very, very thin trade and cooperation agreement um, had for so many sectors, particularly SMEs, but finance, fashion, farmers, all the Fs have been effed by <laughs> this Brexit deal. So I think I think she's hit the right tone on that. Um, and the UK Trade and Business Commission that Hilary Benn convenes with Peter Norris from Virgin Group have been taking evidence on all of this and coming up with lots of positive solutions for the government that they could easily implement um, if, if they want to. I think the state of diplomatic relations between the UK and, and the EU at the moment are difficult, but we've seen the EU now drop its court action against the UK uh, this week, which I think indicates not that they'd ever use the word renegotiation, but that under another guise, they might be prepared to um, begin talking about, yeah. obviously, the Northern Ireland Protocol, but other things that can be done to um, soothe cross-border trade between the UK and the EU. And I think Rachel Reeves is a welcome addition into the argument that Bessel Britain has been making since January. (laughs) (laughs) Right, a pound into the self-promo jar. (laughs) Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former US president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. 
This week, the Joe Cox-inspired think tank More in Common released a report called Dowsing the Flames, How Leaders Can Better Navigate Cultural Change in 2020s Britain. And it suggests that Britain is far less interested in culture wars than some newspapers would like to make out. Ross, the report found that only one in three Britons think that party identification is important and only one in five think that leave remain is the most significant divide. Does that surprise you? No, not really. I think there's been a massive turnaround since 2019 with this. With the pandemic, people's minds have just left Brexit, if you like, and they don't want to think about it. They don't want to. They they would really like to move on from that. (laughs) The party identity thing is actually in some ways more interesting. It kind of shows how, how volatile public opinion is. Because if you don't hate a particular party, it often means, you know, you could consider voting for a particular party. And one interesting point here is the extent to which Boris Johnson has actually detoxed the Tory brand for many people. For us, I think, in this room... He has driven it in a... Toxed it. He has toxed it, you know. He has driven it in a populist direction, far away from, you know, the Dominic Grieve-like civilised way of conservatism that we, we approve of. But for quite a few people, I think, Johnson has made it kind of a bit more fun and accessible. And it, 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 I think there's hope in this, really. This is a really good finding, because if people don't define themselves according to these political silos and political identities, that's a good thing. It means they're open to new ideas. It means that they could change their minds. So that's, that's, that's a positive thing. We describes Britain as a nation of balances, seeking to find the middle road through seemingly polarised conflicts, but that this is mis- misrepresented by an industry of conflict entrepreneurs, which is such a great mm. term, I think. <laughs> Since 2015, there's been a 25-fold increase in articles about culture wars. But that isn't reflected in public opinion at all. Can we pretty decisively say here that the culture wars are an elite preoccupation? For many people, yes, I think they are. I mean, they also use the term cultural arsonists, which is a bit stronger than (laughs) entrepreneurs. Uh, It's quite a strongly worded report in that sense. But certainly they... These issues are a preoccupation of people who spend a lot of time online revving up each other's views, disagreeing with each other. And importantly, the people who find their support networks and their tribe online. And I wish the report had gone into more, a bit more detail about this and how important the development of online identities has become mm. in these culture yeah. wars. Because being online, you know, it offers a chance to nurture an identity that you may not be recognised among the people physically around you. You can create yourself, you can create who you are in your own space, and you don't need to worry about offending other people because you don't need to get on with them online. You can just go ahead and, and scope out that identity. And for many people, that's very empowering. But it does lead to a lot of anger and makes you far more likely to act in a defensive, act in a vicious way. So that, to me, it was the missing piece of this report that it didn't go into how these online identities play into the culture wars. Yeah, they're radicalising spaces. Yeah. I suppose what what's what I found uh, great about this report is how sort of not extremely online most people are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah. Is, which is like, uh, this is very healthy. Ian, last week, Charles Arthur talked to us about social warming in online discourse. Um, This report talks about cultural arsonists. We can all identify them on the right. Are there as many twisted fire starters on the left? (laughs) Or is it asymmetrical? No, no, no. I I, I think absolutely there are. I mean, you... you you will absolutely see people who are engaged in, in a fairly puritanical effort at dividing good good people from bad people, from the virtuous, from the from the those who lack virtue, and they'll be engaged in that pretty much all the time. I mean, it, 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 I find it impossible to get the same level of irritation in me at those people because I'm fundamentally more sympathetic towards what they're doing, but also because I feel that ultimately the aims that they're going for are usually about supporting the most marginalised people as opposed to the dominant group of people in a society. So, th- so the end result of what they're aiming for is fundamentally different, but the tactics are very often the same. And the tactics remain unhealthy even when they're done for yeah. a cause that you're more sympathetic towards. And I suppose another uh, phenomenon which is largely a, a Twitter problem is the amplification, which the report also talks about, of people like Darren Grimes and Julia Hartley Brewer, people right. who I do not follow. 
That surprises me. Who would have thought? Who always, because I like my bubble. Um, (laughs) No, but people who always seem to be like stuffed in my faces, Mm. you know. Mm. So you won't believe what Dan Grimes said. Dan Grimes has never achieved anything of note in his entire (laughs) life. He is a completely worthless individual who contributes nothing to the public conversation. And yet people are still just like, oh, no, Grimes, you won't believe what Grimes has said. (laughs) Do um, do sort of left liberal people... just still like really really bad when it comes to like taking the bait so i i think that there's no right answer to this question right so the are you amplifying it or are you challenging it and the the reality is you cannot that is not a question that has one answer you at some times you are going to be amplifying so it it strikes me that right now if you're sharing stuff from gb news even in order because it's such a low status right now Mm. even in order to condemn it you you probably are providing the most effective route for them to become successful that that does seem true but even i had to fucking mention gb news the other day because vince cable made such an absolute twat of himself on it mm-hmm. but i just thought well that actually does need to be stated that mm. what he's saying there is really morally objectionable now on the other hand you certain times people who are quite prominent whether it's in the pages of a newspaper or whether they're a secretary of state so something that is condemnable and it must be condemned you know we can't have a situation yeah. where you know every time pretty patel says something dreadful you're like you're amplifying her it's oh, like, I'm yeah. amplifying her. she's the fucking sure, but they have power like i suppose i'm talking about these uh, i suppose conflict entrepreneurs but where they is- actually don't but you see, I think that a lot of people do have quite a lot about. So, I mean, you, you, let's take the Julia Hartley-Brewer example, right? Um, so, power is probably the wrong word, but there is influence there. Anyone who writes for the Telegraph, as we now discovered, has huge influence over government policy, okay? And by virtue of, ha- of having that influence mm. and being talked about on Sky News and everywhere else, they have an influence over the conversation. So, you cannot just give up the field and get yourself into that state where you're like, well, I never amplified. But also you have to be alive to the fact that sometimes you are doing their job for them. There is no solution to this problem. All you can do is on a case-by-case basis, try to evaluate on the basis of who they are, the influence they're having, and I think most importantly, the basic immorality of the statement itself, how much it is something that, that requires one or the other response. I mean, I'm no hero, but earlier today, <laughs> I was halfway through a quote tweet uh, of Piers Morgan, and then I just stopped. And I was like, no, I shall not. <laughs> Our fallen hero. I shall not. Perhaps that was the one poetry which would have finished him off. <laughs> and I've made a terrible mistake. Um, but there we go. Um, there's a lot of consensus in the report that freedom of speech is important, but so is accountability, which seems like a fairly sort of balanced assessment. Do you think that the parts of the left are too cavalier about free speech, therefore creating, because people do not like the sense of people being silenced, I mean, extreme extremists, I don't think they might. I don't think people are that worried if Katie Hopkins is silenced. Mm. But this obviously does bother people. And do you think that this is something where there's been a kind of, you know, there's been a sort of tactical error on the left with how many people fall under the kind of umbrella of people it's okay to shut up i don't believe that the left has more of a problem with this than the right does as you go i I think you see it pretty much every week you know i mean the last time we saw it i'm I'm fucking about to mention gb news twice and two answers even though i'm saying don't amplify but you know when you see the response of someone guy taking the news Mm. taking the knee gb news is well you got to get rid of him if if you think of taking (laughs) the knee i mean think of what happened you know when when it first started in the u.s was trump saying well you got to get rid of them off the t you know i mean Mm -hmm. there is a massive anti-free speech lobby in the right and in the left and that mostly comes i think from people they will never say i want to silence people what they'll usually say is they haven't been silenced so oh you can get rid of them from this publication you can you can stop this talk you know you can stop it from here but it's not really silencing because of course it's everyone's private interest like no hang on your your default position should always be that people are entitled to talk and debate and that, that that's how you defeat them and, and that principle is the one that protects overwhelmingly the people that it's mostly there for are marginalized people who find it hardest to get the space to talk who find it easiest to be silenced by machines free speech typically works for the underdog so i think it's on left and right the thing is maybe the left has made more of a catastrophic strategic error right. by allowing that the, the wave to go against free speech Naomi, people want to be able to have open discussions without being silenced or shamed. Um, Twitter is obviously a, a subpar forum for this purpose. <laughs> um, what are the alternatives? What, what kind of places can we have discussions about, you know, some fairly, dare I say it, for example, like trans issues, where, you know, there are very, very strong opinions on both sides and, uh, and, and there doesn't seem to be a space um, where they can actually have a discussion. What did we do before Twitter? I mean, we're all old enough to remember before Twitter. Um, And, you know, I like to think it was down the pub, 
but also in schools and on the telly. Um, and I just think it, it, it probably all just really comes back to education and teaching people how to think critically is so important. And I just, I don't know how much of that fits into the curriculum these days. And I'm not an educationist. I don't follow, you know, the latest goings on with the curriculum and, and how children get taught. But I, I do sort of worry about that. And especially if we're segregating children by religion and race and gender and things like that. So I want that space to be there for teaching compassion and acceptance and liberal values. And I, I didn't have a chance to read all of the report. It's 80 pages long, but it looks very, very good. And I did skim it. As a cultural liberal, I suppose, and, and I think all of our listeners are too, Like we, we kind of by default embrace doubt and pluralism. And we're not exclusionary by default. And so I, I think I probably did find on my sort of scant reading of it, and apologies to more in common that I haven't read it properly and I will, uh, some of it a little bit wet and maybe a little bit kumbayari. Because as a liberal, I think we've just got to be constantly upholding and challenging and championing and defending human rights and having to maintain constant vigilance over it and and the report talks about um having cross-party commissions look i've obviously a big fan of cross-party commissions i run one and um, i i think that the more cross-party working that we can get going both in parliament and outside of parliament and getting discussive situations going whether it's citizens assemblies and citizens juries and conventions and things like that the better absolutely i do though think that you have to campaign as well so it, when you believe in something and you want to uphold certain communities rights or uh it, champion human rights for for everybody then that has to be done in a way that is much more campaigny and putting forward the positive case for it rather than just having it in a hold hands and we'll all agree to disagree or we'll all you know find some kind of consensus because you have to be ever vigilant on human rights and I, I often talk about it on this podcast but Canada is such a great example where liberals are constantly vigilant and constantly campaigning and pushing the brilliance of the acceptance of diversity in society and so I would be worried about us getting sidetracked by arguments that are trying to undermine us by only doing uh, things like this that are sort of very ameliorating and and losing that kind of campaigning edge to advancing human rights uh, across the UK. Ian, another recommendation in the report is to use accessible language, not jargon. If you're from the progressive campaigning side of things, uh, as Naomi says, do we sometimes underestimate how alienating certain phrases can be because they always make sense to you? if you're immersed in it. I mean, I don't have particularly strong opinions on the phrase, you know, white privilege. It's something that to me makes perfect sense. I also know that some people, it always reads wrong. It doesn't matter how many times you explain it. That word privilege can read wrong because it always seems to mean something economic. The, fr- the phrase white privilege is a fucking disaster zone for like a really good idea. And, and to, I didn't really get the concept of white privilege until I... I spoke to a professor who was talking about it. He said, look, I've never been in any kind of um, a dispute at work when most people look like me. And he's like, but you will never, and that includes, or, or job interviews or whatever, but you will have. And so there is a very different experience that you would have had. And that this is a form of privilege. And I just thought, oh, this makes complete sense. Well. You say privilege and for 90% of people, it just, it's fucking about economics. And what you're really doing is just talking to sort of like, you know, some white kid from a council state and saying you're privileged. And, and the reality is when it, you need to have a pragmatic, sensible approach toward the kind of language that you use if you want to bring people with you. If you don't, you will lose out. I think the same is also true, by the way, for the concept of whiteness with a capital W. You can say all this stuff about whiteness and what it will sound like to not just 90% of people, fucking 98% of people that hear it is you're basically just slagging off all white people, which doesn't sound great to me, you know, especially if, if you're white. So on the basis, it, it, all of this kind of deeply academic language is an absolute fucking disaster. And there is nowhere near enough attention paid to just sort of practical politics, which any political party would do, going, what is the best message to sell the idea that I have? And over and over again, what the left does, primarily because so many of these disputes arise in an academic and an activist context, which are quite close sort of units of people, is they just start using terminology that's a fucking disaster. You get the same, by the way, in pro-immigration movements. You, you see people walking around with banners saying, no one is illegal. You think, for fuck's sake, don't put the word illegal on your banner. Like, I'm obviously totally with you, but like, if you put the, the thing that you're trying to get away from on the banner that you're walking around the demo in you fuck it you made a terrible error of communication and i was intrigued by how many complaints there were about how americanized the discourse has become and this is something that i mean the left has been aware of it used to be very aware of a like hundred years ago or more you know you had, you had socialists in 
in, in Britain and America talking about the need for a distinct form of socialism hmm. in that country that didn't seem kind of like, you know, spooky and foreign <laughs> fundamentally for mm -hmm. them. But now what we have is all these ideas that we've just imported wholesale and phrases imported wholesale from America in a country which is quite different. And of course, there are resonances and overlaps. But that to me seems another product of the internet. Is that something do you think that progressives should be should be more wary of? Honestly, I would have probably said yes before, but and and probably the answer is yes to a certain degree. But we've just had a bit like what we've when we were discussing Labour's improved polling performance and the Tory decline. I mean, part of that story is, as Naomi said, is is the football team story, right? And that's taking the knee. Taking the knee came from the US, you know. So there, you're always in this. You're, you're in a communication. Pretty much every country, to some extent, is in a communication with the US because it is the dominant sort of cultural sort of emitter on, on a global scale. And you're going to take some of those ideas that, that seem to work and you're going to adopt them. And you're going to take some that don't seem to work. An obvious one is defund the police, which badly fails the communication strategy and just say, we're not going to fucking go into too near that. And most, you very rarely hear the defund the police thing here in this country. And p partly because it doesn't quite map on and partly because it just seemed, it just doesn't really seem to work. Well, I think the England team, in a way, did successfully. They sort of anglicised it. They took the mm -hmm. way that Gareth mm -hmm. Southgate explained taking the oh, knee. that's true. Yeah. And it was like, it's not... Because the thing is with Black Lives Matter is it's such a complicated movement in that there's, there's a whole... There's an organisation, but then there's a whole much, much larger informal network. And what seems to happen is that they seem to break that. Like, nobody thought the England team represented the most kind of radical aspect of Black Lives Matter in America. It seemed that that was kind of... That it was in a somewhat de-Americanized, even though that was where it yeah, emerged. Yeah, it's a transmission agent, yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, you do see a distinction, right, with, um, let's say, the use of the word colonialism here, which I think you see a bit less of, slightly less of in the US because of the sort of legacy of slavery as opposed to colonialism. So you see these these patterns and these branches of, of sort of what gets used in the aspects of the past that are spoken back to. You can't, I think ultimately when it comes down to this is you can't get past the fact that America retains this very, very powerful influence on our culture. Um, and on that basis, we are going to be taking the ideas. And at the moment, you look at most of it and think that largely there is a pretty healthy sifting process between the better ones and the worse ones. Ross, finally, did you overall find this a cheering read? <laughs> did you find it? Did you find it a little wet, as 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 Naomi suggests? Like, would you recommend people uh, read this report? Yeah, I would. I mean, I think yes. The injunction to you know talk more, get on the internet less, is a bit wet in a way. But on the other hand, it is quite fundamental. I think one of the most problematic aspects of the culture wars issue and the one that people find hardest to deal with is when people are told that they do not have the right to contribute to a particular discussion mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they don't have lived experience of oppression. And that has, I think, quite a toxic impact on the ability to for people, for the campaigners themselves to get their message across. But on the debate at large, if you are told that you really do not have the right to comment at all because it's time for you to stand back because of the centuries of oppression that, that people have experienced, that it's time for you to step back. But, but not just that, that it's time for you to shut up and step back. That is very difficult for people to accept. So ultimately, because the online debate has become so toxic in so many places and because we seem to be getting nowhere on mm. Twitter or any other form of social media, it has to go back into yeah. the real world because that's the only way we can we can move forward. The temptation to retreat into your social media bubble and to hang out with people whom you agree with and who don't challenge you is very great and it's very comforting and it's a lovely place to be in and in a world that is pretty terrible at the moment, especially if you're on the left, but for all kinds of other reasons too. But we have to resist that temptation. It's going to be really hard, but we have to do it. Yeah, what I took away from it was was actually, uh, you know, that, 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 that people are actually up for restricting hate speech. Yeah. And restricting free speech, or certainly, and people being punished for their the use of their freedom of speech if the speech is extreme. But they really, really, really hate the idea of being told to shut up, yeah. of being silenced. This is a kind of it's like a human. It's not it's not an intellectual position. Yeah, it's a human instinct, and that that is something that that, that should be used. I always think we use that in very, very clear senses. Like this is the line. You cross that line, and it's just like. These are the consequences, but that it should be sparing 
the amount of things that we just that we shut down. Yeah. And let's talk about where the line is. This is the important thing to talk about what hate speech is, because it is up for debate what hate speech amounts to, depending on who's doing it, where it takes place, what is being said, all these different things that play into a definition of hate speech. We have to discuss what hate speech is before we can agree as a society Mm. on how to police it. Now it's time for Underrated, Overrated. This week, it's Ian Dunst's turn. Yes. Okay. So th- this is what well, this is what happened in the last lockdown, which is that you know it was really fucking depressing and bleak and winter and you couldn't go out. So the decision in the sort of Dunt household was we're going to eat and drink our way through this thing uh, as the only way of finding joy. And now this sort of inevitable period has come where that needs to stop. That has to stop. So my underrated is carbohydrates. <laughs> I fucking love them. I never knew how much I love them. I love them so much. I, it turns out that I love them most of all at 7pm when I've decided that I can't have them anymore and I will just sit there. And my overrated is is fucking salad, Matt. What the fuck even is that shit? It's just nothing. It's not even anything. It's just fucking leaves. And yet you have to... It's not it's like to trick yourself into thinking that you're eating. And I know this section is supposed to have some kind of political content, but I just don't give a fuck. I need to talk about the fact that I want carbs. I want carbs. I want a chip butty. You're keto. I'm keto. Are you you doing a keto diet? I don't know what that means. That means a very, very low-carb diet. No. I'm having a normal breakfast, half of my usual lunch, which annoyingly fucking means that I can work in the afternoon, which I couldn't before because I was dead. So now not only am I like physically unsatisfied, I have to do like another three hours work a fucking day between two and five and then and then no carbs in the evening. And it's bullshit. I can't stress it. It's, the, it's just the most dreadful experience. But I've got one I, word for you, Ian. Croutons. Those are the answer. I then fucking, you get your salad and you get your carbs. But the salad is so bulky and there's so much of it that you yeah. don't have to eat that many You have croutons. no idea, man. I'm fucking smashing that shit. I am fucking like through two thirds of a packet of croutons a <laughs> salad. If I'm having so many croutons, I might as well have a fucking baguette. But I just, it's just the only way, yeah. It's, it's a good call, but also one that fundamentally undermines the original purpose of what I'm doing. But nevertheless. I think we're probably going to need like a cross-party commission <laughs> on salad <laughs> to resolve this in a seemly manner. I'm sorry. If they, I bet there's like a fucking salad Twitter that's going to come at me I'm, tomorrow or whatever. I'm, but they are. They're bullshit. I'm a great, they're I, think, I, think, I, think, I think me and Naomi are salad Twitter. Oh, shit. Are you both salad guys? I, mean, I love salad. Oh, that's... <laughs> but like a good salad, not just a bunch of leaves. You've got to pimp the salad. How do you how do you pimp it? How do you make it all right? Oh, I mean, I'll 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 come round and I'll I'll. <laughs> as long as it doesn't involve vegan cheese. No, never. <laughs> <laughs> Roasted cauliflower that pimps the salad. Oh no, fuck that! Cauliflower's I, bullshit. I want the scientists that develop the vaccine to get onto vegan cheese because this is one of the great. <laughs> but surely it should be possible. Mm-hmm. To it have is, a vegan cheese is. which does not taste like. Naomi brought me some vegan cheese once, and yeah. it was the tits. Yeah. La Fermagerie and Brick Lane. That's where you need it. to head. No. Absolute dog's bollocks. Don't, Genuinely really, really good. Don't believe it. It's made it. Then that's not vegan. <laughs> <laughs> now it's time for But Your Emails. This week, Jem says, I don't want to jinx it, but we might be coming to the end of the pandemic, although not many lessons have been learned. What message or advice would the panel send back in time to themselves in February 2020 when all this was starting, if they could? Naomi. I was really hoping you wouldn't come to me first because I hadn't really given this enough thought. Probably go and spend loads and loads and loads of time with your family because you're then not going to be able to see them without (laughs) fearing that you're going to kill them for six months. Um, So definitely that. Invest early in a big air conditioning unit because it's going to hit 36 degrees <laughs> for a few days straight in August and you haven't got an air conditioned office to go and hide in. Um, so yeah, some, some pra- practicalities like that. But, um, uh, yeah, thankfully I was in an incredibly privileged position where, you know, I was, I had room to work in a separate room to the one that I have to watch TV in and sleep in and things like that. So uh, I don't want to, I don't want to complain too much about, about the lockdown that I had. Um, and I had an amazing team who were great and wonderful as well so yeah i think my advice would just be around spending even more time with loved ones 
Roz? Uh, well, buy shares in Pfizer, obviously. Um, <laughs> but no, more realistically, um, don't, don't make assumptions about what the state can and can't do. I really hacked off a listener who had a good go at me on Twitter in probably late February when um, I basically, uh, someone asked, one of you are, on, on what was then Romaniacs, uh, asked me, uh, you know, is there a chance that one day, you know, we might have to lock down? And I said, oh, no, 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 because it would just it would just kill the economy. Now, <laughs> now naturally, you know, I said that because I had no I inkling that were the government... That, were you that demo in Trafalgar Square? <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I had no inkling that the state would agree to pay millions of people's wages um, for right. an indefinite period at that time. I had no idea that the state would be prepared to do that in order to in, to ensure that a lockdown was adhered to. It was a failure of imagination. So, you know, so many things are unthinkable until they actually happen. And in my case, you know, I had no idea that the state could uh, decide that I had to homeschool to could basically enforce a massive lockdown. Uh, it was beyond my imagination. Uh, Ian? Oh, Thomas, you don't need to wipe down all the food. Because I did that for a really long oh, fucking yeah. time. Leave an Amazon package for 48 hours. <laughs> Do you remember that shit? Yeah, yeah. I fucking, and I wiped down everything with those funny little wipes that eventually you had to use instead of toilet paper because some cunt had taken it all. So it was over and over wiping food. That was probably three, four, maybe up to six months of my life I spent wiping down the food and that outdoor arrived at my trans- house. The whole outdoor transmission thing where you would swerve someone walking down mm. on the pavement. Yes, which is pointless in the end. Yeah. Pointless. How about you? I would have... I would probably... Two bits of useful information. One, there will be a vaccine much, much sooner than everybody is saying. Mm-hmm. Two, this will still go on much longer than you think. <laughs> <laughs> now, but what's crazy, whenever I... Basically, I think it's really useful to say, how would things be without a vaccine? And they would be really, really bad. The idea that I remember talking mm-hmm. to people just going, yeah, this should probably be over September 2020 without a vaccine. Absolute madness. Understandable. Because nobody wanted to think more than like six months ahead, but still, just kind of like mind-boggling mm. that, that, that sort of people thought that. And I think preparing for it to be a longer, and then therefore adapting for longer. Certainly, in terms of work, I was like, this is just a very brief crisis where, you know, I think it's going to be really, really weird. Whereas, obviously, I would have made different plans had I known how long it would go on. But that knowledge would have to be accompanied by, oh, by the way, there's going to be a vaccine. Because if someone said, yeah, no, it's going to go on for about a year and a half and there's going to be no vaccine. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Psychologically, do you know what I mean? How, I don't yeah, know how I couldn't I have hoped that. if you told me that this, it, it was still going to be, you know, I, I just could not have done. The, I couldn't think beyond weeks in terms of getting out of it. Mm. Would have it would have the blow to my mental health would have been too great. I'm afraid. Mm. Yes, almost the not the not knowing in some yeah. ways was 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 quite useful. Yeah, <laughs> it was a really good question. Thank you, Jim. More like that, please. Uh, and that's the show. My thanks to Roz. Thank you, Ian. Thank you very much, and Naomi. Thanks very much. In the extra bit for Patreon backers, we're going for podcasting gold and talking about the Olympics. You'll hear a quick preview after our theme song "Demon Is a Monster" by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. Hello from me to Emily Powell, Jonathan Patience, Kazlux Seven, Joseph Kispel. Adam Sutcliffe and Jonathan Fairclough. Greetings and a big thank you from me to Matt Briggs, Betty and David Moxon, Mrs. Sarah L. Gray, Ben and Kate, Darren Fletcher and James Wilkinson. Hello and thanks for your support. Tommy Mack, Rye, Tim Moore, Jenny Powell, Oliver Guest and Hanstidge. I know Tommy Mack. Thank you, Tommy Mack, for uh, giving us some money. And thanks from me to Diane Holden, Grant Cecil, Matt Sawyer, John Latham, Sarah Dorman and Rick Ferguson. We'll see you next time. Oh, God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt, Naomi Smith and Ross Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Our intern was Nat Amos. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh, God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. On this week's extra bit for Patreon backers, the Olympics are underway in Tokyo, so we will talk sports and politics. Firstly, I want to ask everybody, I'm going to admit, I haven't been watching it. I've done my sport for the year. It was <laughs> I don't think there's any need to overdo it. But you guys have been watching bits. Uh, what's been good so far, uh, Ross? I've been watching quite a lot of swimming. 
um, which I never used to do much of, and now I do quite a lot. And so it's quite enjoyable watching other people do it faster and infinitely better. And, you know, particularly when they turn around and they do those turns in between their oh, legs. Yes, I like the turns. Yeah, they're it's just like a good. somersault. It's, <clears throat> it's like watching mermaids, and then they kind of cruise along for a while. They don't just sort of touch, touch, yeah. like me, like touch the side and go... <sighs> and and, you know they're doing breaststroke and I do breaststroke normally but their breaststroke isn't like my breaststroke it's just like it's elite breaststroke it's extraordinary so I've been enjoying that they're like penguins aren't they they look like incredibly graceful in the water Mm. but then when you see them up above they they don't anymore they just look well they look like triangles because they've always these massive shoulders yeah yeah, they look like and then the tiny rest of them they're in quite good shape they're in fucking amazing shape. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. But it's just like the thing is, with the swimming is I can't really follow it from up above. Like, because I can't work out which one's which. So I want one of them, whatever, and I'm like, I can't spot him anymore. And it's just it's very splashy, splashy. But when the camera's under, they should film the whole thing from under the water. <laughs> Okay. By the way, this is a, this is a, about the level of commentary and analysis you're going to get over the next fifteen Ian, minutes. Apart so from revolutionising <laughs> Olympics coverage, what have you been watching? Uh, I spent a lot of time watching skateboarding, which was f- fucking great to be honest. Mostly because I sort of I, I never and that was a trailer for the bonus edition of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh god, what now? Every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as two pounds a month. You'll be helping the podcast and we'll be pathetically grateful. And don't forget our new weekly mini-cast, Oh God, What Else?, out every Monday morning. Thanks for listening. Take care. See you next week. 